So a while back, I had the opportunity to live a year in Burma and uh, practice in two different monasteries. And I was able to ordain in both monasteries and work with um, two very incredible teachers, two very different teachers. And they taught me a lot of the practices that we're practicing here. Um, so I'd like to give you a little bit of what I learned from them, um, translated some. <laughs> with some wisdom of reflection and experience since then. Um, but it was a profound time to work with two different people that had two different angles in on this very material. So for this talk, and maybe for uh, all the talks actually, um, I would invite you to stay in your body and practice body listening. So uh, it's entertaining to um, have someone speak, especially when there's been this much silence. And maybe you want a break from the body after so much body contact you've had. But um, every now and then at least take a breath in uh, to make sure that you're um, staying connected to your body. And then see if you could actually listen from being within your body. And that's a whole skill to develop how to participate with others uh, while still being in your body. So going uh, just quickly to the second monk that I worked with, his, um, his English wasn't very good, but his smile was very intoxicating. And um, just the twinkle in his eye sustained me a lot as I was going through what many of you were going through, the ups and downs of practice. He tried many ways to help me tune into the meditation that he was trying to teach. And one day, um, he, I think he gave up on English. <laughs> and that type of dialogue. And he said, um, I want your meditation practice to be like this. And he paused for a second and I leaned in. Okay. He said, I want it to be like this. <sighs> and then he twinkled again. And that was it. <laughs> and I was both excited and crushed. <laughs> Because there was great hope that one day that would be true for me. <laughs> and there was a great realization that I felt I had very far to go before that would be true. Um, but it began turning for me uh, what had been a work project, a labor of love, um, a wanting to be free and a willingness to work very hard towards it, to turning my attention, turning the quality of how I approached my direct experience to one of actually settling in and enjoying the process. But I had to discover how to do that because I was very willing to work, very willing to deal with the hardships and the occasional blessings that would come along. But um, having the basis of my practice be one of relaxation, one of enjoyment, one of feeling uh, good about it day in and day out uh, took some retooling of my whole approach. And some of that had come from the first monk I had worked with who helped me very much, but he had encouraged this more warrior spirit. So learning how to soften, relax, and enjoy the practice um, took some time. And so I went to one of his senior students uh, who spoke English better. It was this uh, nun. And she had lived in the West some, and her English was excellent. 
and she was a phenomenal meditator, very also well-renowned as a teacher and as someone who could do these practices. And I said, I know how to do the work of the, I know how to be diligent with uh, working, putting in my time, but um, I really don't get this happiness and content thing. <laughs> I mean, that seems like rainbows. It just comes every now and then. You go, oh my God, it's so beautiful. Oh, it's going so quickly. <laughs> Oh, I wish I had had my camera on me <laughs> just to prove that that had happened. <laughs> that someday there will be other rainbows. And so I described this to her. And, um, and she said uh, that she's very careful not to do a lot of hard work until she feels contentment, until she feels happiness, until she feels relaxed. <clears throat> and again, that was like, well... I don't think that I'd ever do hard work because I don't quite get it. And so, and she didn't get why I couldn't get that. It's like, wow, that seems pretty obvious. But with her encouragement, I began approaching meditation um, with less of a work ethic or less dominated by a work ethic and more what is it like to cultivate happiness and contentment as a platform, as a basis of being, and then coming in to encounter my direct experience. And that was very helpful. So <clears throat> I'd like to get to that a little bit here. Um, and if it, if it doesn't click, at least uh, you get the transmission from them. One is just a <sighs> And the other is um, having happiness and contentment not be like a, the odd rainbow, but something where that's really the orientation that you settle into and then approach whatever is happening from there. I know sometimes the challenges get so heavy, thick, and seem to last long enough that that, that seems like a remote possibility. But it is how uh, things begin to settle some with this practice, that things settle where that is a little bit more where we're coming from as we practice. And then the disturbances visit us, and they challenge us, but they're not the basis. They're not the basis of our mind, not the basis of our heart, not the basis of our body. Um, and that's really where we're headed. That's really where this practice leads. So <clears throat> an important turning that I'd like to offer early on is um, that consciousness and awareness already reside in the body. It's not something you have to bring into the body. And that was my first um, understanding, because I was so out of my body at the time, I was trying to work my way in. And there was a turning point where um, a teacher told me, um, in kind of a talk like this, that the feelings you have in your body are consciousness themselves. They're awareness themselves. So the rising of warmth in your hands, or the feeling of pulse in your body, that's already a conscious event. And what I was doing is I was still very up in my head trying to feel that, trying to study it, trying to make a connection to it. And that's where a lot of my, my labor came in because I was very uh, sort of upstairs trying to get down, trying to feel more. Whereas when you just have any sensation in your body, that's already a conscious event. That's already mindfulness in a way that there's that event happening. And it's, it, there's a lot less work needed when you can kind of let the body have experiences, let the body sense, uh, sense itself, and just rest in that, just rest in what's already happening there. 
not necessarily trying to build a connection. So that was a, that was a turning. And I think that as we go through this retreat, more and more that's what will happen. It will feel more second nature, like it's already happening. You're already aware of the body. It will take less work to, to feel it. Um, and that's sort of you're resting on the fact that awareness that already permeates the body. It doesn't take necessarily work to permeate it. The body is already filled with a type of awareness, with a type of consciousness, and it's just tuning into that. It's more like tuning a radio into a station that's already playing the music, as opposed to trying to build, um, build that connection. So that's why sometimes the, the work uh, is needed in the beginning, just to even settle in. But then it's about picking up what's already happening. The body is already doing what it's already doing. It's already a, a, a living, thriving miracle. It knows how to digest food. It knows how to circulate the blood. It knows how to breathe. And you're just tuning into this. And you're just tuning into this miracle that many of us have taken for granted. And it's just a matter of not taking it for granted. It's just a matter of appreciating what's already happening. So here's, um, here's an analogy. <laughs> and this one gets pretty far out there, so it goes from an analogy to maybe an animated movie. <laughs> so, but I, I hope it translates. So uh, when I was young, I grew up near Boston. And um, one of the great things we would do is we'd visit this incredible aquarium in Boston. And it's a huge, huge tank that maybe maybe higher than this room, and it's at least as wide, uh, surrounded by windows. And all these fish are swimming through, uh, and they have all these different types of fish. And I remember going there as a young boy, and being able to just sit there and watch all these schools of fish go by, different, so many different kinds, and the clear water to see them go by. And then every now and then this huge shark would go by, and we'd all get very excited, and the shark would pass, and then we'd see other little fish go by. And in a way, um, the analogy is that um, awareness and consciousness um, are like the water. They're there, they're already filling, it's already filling the tank. And then the experiences we have are like the fish swimming through it. When we come to a retreat, given how we've lived, um, sometimes I feel like there's, the tank is totally full of fish <laughs> and there's not so much water. And so everything's sort of swimming by each other. It's more like fish caught in a net and there's all these, um, there's too many fish, too little water. Um, but as we can sit down and relax into the body, into our experience, <clears throat> more what happens is the sense of this, uh, this space opening up, this space of awareness. And then the fish don't kind of squirm so much uh, through each other, past each other, but they, they can kind of pass by more. Thoughts pass by, emotions pass by, body sensations arise, pass by, and you can experience them. You can experience the flow of them. And that's very much what the, uh, the taste of freedom is like in this practice as it progresses, is that more and more there's ample water for whatever is swimming through it. And you can take larger and larger experiences, larger and larger schools of fish. Um, different types of fish can pass through without uh, there being any resistance. And if it's, uh, if it's a healthy system, the water is clear, the fish are very healthy passing through. And one thing I was <clears throat> kind of surprised by is that 
when the big shark goes by, all the other fish don't run away. There, there's this strange balance of this big shark going through and then other little fish going through. And I don't quite know how they, how they work that out, but the, the sense is that they're, they're all quite peaceful. They're all kind of peaceful just swimming by. And that's ultimately what our practice ends up feeling like. That's ultimately what our, our free heart and mind feels like, that you can have large things swimming through. Even your internal sharks can swim through. But like a big, like a, let's say, um, someone was talking about maybe murderous thoughts. Strangely enough, they can swim through and they don't really do anything. They just swim through and then they swim out and then you're undisturbed. It's just a strange thing. When, the, when there's a type of balance struck like that, anything can swim through and it's not that disturbing. And then it passes and then something else swims through. And then sometimes there's just the beautiful clear water and it's sort of open and peaceful and feels sort of uh, empty of experience, kind of calm. And then something else swims through. So that would be my sort of uh, easy pointing towards what the Deborah was talking about in the third noble truth. When we stop clinging and struggling with our experience, it feels like there's just ample water for whatever is trying to thrive within, whatever is happening within. And then <clears throat> Pascal talked about the hindrances and he used the water analogy, that sometimes the water is murky, sometimes it's disturbed, sometimes it has the coloring dyes, and sometimes it's a boiling agitating. So you can imagine that if the aquarium, um, if you raise the heat <laughs> slowly, the fish would get a little more disturbed. And then if it actually began agitated, the fish would be agitated. So there's a way that when the mind, when uh, the mind is agitated, so are the fish within. So the thoughts become agitated. The thoughts will speed up. The thoughts will be like the water. If the water is agitated, the thoughts will be agitated. If the water is murky, the fish are murky. I don't know if you've ever had a fish tank and not cleaned it for a while, gone on vacation and come back and you're like, yeah, it's time to change the water, that the fish have gotten a little film on them, the tank's got a little film on them. And the hindrances can be like that. There's just a little bit of murk in there. So we clean and we, we uh, endure the, um, the hindrances as they arise. We endure the murky water, the agitated water. <clears throat> But one thing you can do is you can actually rest in the fact that the water itself is not disturbed. The water, the H2O, that's sort of floating there, it doesn't really mind. It doesn't really mind what's happening. It can boil. It can have um, fish swim through. It can be covered in weeds. The water itself is not that bothered. And that's what, that's what the freedom is actually based in. It's not so much the fish and their state, not so much what's floating in the water. The fact that we can be sort of floating uh, through our lives with the sense of awareness, open to whatever passes through. Also in this analogy <clears throat> is that the water is intimately connected with what's passing through it. So the water is not outside the glass watching. The water is inside. And as something swims through it, it feels every millimeter, every surface, whether it's a shark or a seahorse, whether it's a blowfish, whether it's a, some sort of weird, strange grouper, <laughs> the barracuda, it doesn't matter what's in the tank, the water feels it all. It feels every surface of it. It doesn't mind. That's what awareness is like. That's what a free awareness is like. It doesn't end up 
reacting. It doesn't end up choosing what it's willing to touch and what it's not willing to touch. And then deeper than that, it not only touches the surface, but the, the fish end up breathing the water. The water enters in and becomes part of what's, what's living in the water. And the same is true with our own awareness. It's not that I'm aware of heat. It's that heat and awareness arise together. The heat I'm feeling is, is existing because there's actually awareness there for it to arise within. There's a coexistence of awareness and what it's aware of. So that's that type of balance that's struck. The things that happen within, there's space enough for them to happen within so they can swim as they need. The awareness is intimately connected and non-reactive. And it doesn't really matter what happens day in and day out. Your awareness is willing to feel whatever happens. So that's, that's sort of what the third noble truth, the taste of this freedom is like. The challenge and why, why that's not our direct experience, and this is where the analogy gets weird, is that there's this very strange fish in the tank. And it's a little bit nutty. <clears throat> and it's not like the other fish. It hasn't struck balance. And this is called the ego fish. <laughs> and the ego fish, on one level, in terms of the water, is just another fish not a problem, but it's, it messes with the other fish. <laughs> it goes around saying, that's my shark. That's my barracuda. That's my seahorse. That's mine, that's mine, that's mine. And not only is it mine, it's not behaving well. So it gives little lectures to the shark and goes in. And the shark doesn't matter, the big shark, it does what it wants. And this eagle fish gets really frustrated. Why won't this shark do what I told it to do? So it ends up struggling with it and ends up swimming around and being kind of agitated. It also has an identity crisis. It, it can't see itself. So it goes up and it looks at the turtle. It's like, I'm a turtle. Oh, oh, that's what I am. I'm a turtle. And the turtle swims by. It's like, wait, who am I now? Who am I now? And the shark comes, oh my god, I'm a shark. Wow, I'm big. And it says, could be this tiny little fish, but it, whatever it sees, it thinks that's what I am. That's what I am. And it's like, wait a second, I can see a turtle and a shark. I'm a turtle and a shark. That's crazy. How could that be? And so this, this ego fish gets really confused. It confused, it doesn't know who it is. And when it tries to solidify who it is, it does that by trying to own. It's like, okay, I own this tank, this is my tank, my territory. So it goes around either eyeing or mying, eyeing or mying. <clears throat> and if it's a small fish, it doesn't bother the other one so much. But if it gets really activated, if it gets really stirred up, it becomes a nuisance in the tank. A lot of what you are wrestling with is your ego fish. It's just another thing that's happening. It's just another thing. I'm feeling warmth. I'm feeling this. I, I'm feeling, let's say, tightness in my knee. Feeling tightness. My knee. Why is my knee tight? Uh-oh. This is a problem. It is just an experience of tightness in my knee. But it's this layer of eyeing and mying that adds on to the experience that begins to where the suffering can begin to grind. And it turns an unpleasant experience into something where you begin to suffer, the eyeing and mying of it. That's as weird as it gets. <laughs> the ego fish. <clears throat> Most of what 
when your mind wanders, it's the activity of this ego trying to manage a chaotic system. It's trying to manage the past, the future, the now. It's trying to understand it all, and it's trying to take control of it all. And there is a way that you could relax and let things just flow and be. And they take much less management than you think. And that's where the increasing sense of freedom is, is that this day is not that different from yesterday as far as the schedule is concerned. But progressively, you can feel more free within it. And what you're resting on is not ego, is not control, is not identity. You're resting more in the enjoyment or the allowing of whatever is occurring. And that's where the sense of health and ease is coming into your system from. The ego will then try to grab it and say, okay, now I got it. Now I see how this thing works. Now I can own myself as a happy, healthy meditator. Now I'm spiritual. Now I'm better than my brother and I can go tell him. <laughs> I can go to the Thanksgiving meal and not be so agitated because I'm free. <laughs> and then all of a sudden your system gets agitated again because you've tried to own it. The ego tries to own it again. And if you can see that as just something that's happening in the moment, it's just another weird fish swimming through the moment, trying to own it, then you're resting again on awareness. You're resting again on the quality of being just conscious of what's happening and not trying to purchase it, grab it. As uh, Pascal said, appropriate it. Appropriating these experiences to bolster up this uh, slightly insane ego fish. <laughs> Little water for the system. <laughs> there's a um, there's a really funny memory of um, uh, scuba diving in so coming out of the aquarium and going to Thailand and traveling around and scuba diving and then floating there. And so we're, we're very weird fish because we have on these masks, these air tanks. We have to breathe air out of these tanks and these fish are coming by. And um, That's already strange enough. But if your uh, scuba diving partner is Pascal, <laughs> then it's a very strange fish because <laughs> that fish wants to do ballet underwater. <laughs> So while we're sort of floating there, taking in the fish, you look over and there's one fish grabbing his fin. <laughs> Creating quite a show. And then it's hard not to lose all your air underwater laughing. <laughs> Very dangerous sometimes. <laughs> the Pascal fish underwater. So um, I wanted to talk some about, um, that's what the taste is, the taste of the freedom the third noble truth. And then the fourth noble truth is a very um, prescribed path with all the many trainings in how to free oneself of the habits of being caught, of clinging and selfing. Um, and one of those important trainings is the training of mindfulness and meditation. And then Philip offered the first foundation in that training, which was the foundation of the body. So the meditation we do is part of a much larger path called the Eightfold Path, um, but it's a lot of what we're doing here um, is developing this quality of mindfulness, and it's a really key component of how we end up feeling free, how we end up developing that freedom. 
more aligning with the water in the tank than the, the egos in the tank. So the first foundation is mindfulness of the body. And uh, there are many recommended, but the two that are um, most often practiced are mindfulness of the breath and then mindfulness of the four elements. <clears throat> when, uh, <laughs> when I ordained uh, with the first monk, Sayada Upandita, he's, very, um, he's known as sort of a warrior monk. And so I was very inspired and um, ordained and shaved my head. And um, they gave me these very thin polyester robes. Because um, most of the time in Burma, it's hot. But um, I had the, the genius to ordain in January, which is mostly hot, except um, at 3 o'clock in the morning when we would get up. And I'd be shivering. It would be so cold. And all I had suddenly was this thin polyester robe to wear. And... Um, it really was not enough to keep me warm. <clears throat> and so I was you know, trying not to complain and trying to get up to the experience of my newly ordained um, uh, capacity and went on this alms walk through town. And I was shivering the whole time. And the whole time I was saying, okay, this can't be right. I, I uh, this isn't healthy. I think I should wait. I'll wait till February. What I'll do is I'll, I'll say I made a mistake. <laughs> I made a mistake. Uh, not from this country. And really what I should have done is ordained in February when it's warm at 3 o'clock in the morning because it's actually a little cold for me. And <clears throat> they don't really take well to complaining. It's sort of not done. Um, they're very good at, at uh, not receiving complaints. And so you have to be very careful how you complain. <laughs> if you're actually trying to try to get your point, if you're, you're still trying to win that ego battle. And so I went in and I said... Uh, um, on the alms walk, uh, it's very cold, and I'm shivering, and I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to get ill, um, and I won't be able to practice, and that's really what I'm here for. So, you know, for the sake of the practice, really not for the sake of me, <laughs> but for the sake of the nobility of the practice and, and living up to the, the incredible uh, heights that you want me to live up to, um, I think I, I should wait before I uh, go out on alms walk again because it's so cold. And to his credit, he said, just be aware of the cold. I knew he'd say that. I don't even know why I bothered to go in. Because he, he's, not, he's not that, it was his style not to be that um, forgiving or there wasn't really a there, there quality to him. It's just, it's cold, be aware of the cold. So I would, next day I have to go out on alms run and there's really nothing to do but be mindful of how cold it is. And I've really never allowed, I mean, I grew up in New England where it gets very cold, but we have coats and things that we wear. And <laughs> I just never, I have allowed myself to be that cold. But I had some momentum of practice. I had some momentum of practice. So I was able to settle in and feel the cold. And it was definitely unpleasant. Definitely not my first choice. But I was uh, cold. And I noticed that I wasn't shivering so much. If I could actually meet the cold, it didn't cause such shivering. And I, find that I found that the cold wasn't pleasant, but it wasn't actually agitating me. And at the end, I had this intuition that I wasn't going to get sick. I did the whole walk, and then I warmed up. And it was my, one of my first insights that the reason I get ill uh, in cold weather sometimes is how much I brace against it. Sometimes how much my, my system contracts around it not liking how cold it is. And that contraction is where illness actually gets a foothold in, not so much on how cold it was. And so that opened the door, like, okay, I can extend my range. And I would say that that was the gift of working with the first teacher, um, is that... He didn't want me to practice in a 
sort of way. <laughs> Look back in a second. He wanted me to practice in a in a, a noble and courageous way. So again, another challenge that happened was um, the first day that I went on this alms walk through town, I noticed every 100 feet there was a pile of crushed rock. It was in Burma, so I didn't really know what that meant. And then the second day I went, they had turned that crushed rock into paving the road that we walked on. And it was really sharp, suddenly all this broken road, and they hadn't really tarred it yet. We had to walk across it with our bare feet. So it was 100 feet of crushed rock. It was really painful. So again, I went in, it's like, um, let's see, how do I get this one across? <laughs> Uh, it's really painful to walk on this crushed rock that they're paving the road with. And again, it says, well, you have to feel that. Everybody else is feeling it, so you feel that. And it's like, okay. And I should have known that was coming. So I go in and I feel it. And, you know, exposing my feet, which are usually in shoes, and they don't have to feel that much, to suddenly being really tactile. And I started feeling all the crushed rock. And it wasn't, again, unpleasant but I could extend myself up to it and I could feel the contours of the rock. And then I did the math and I realized that <clears throat> there were maybe 20 piles of these uh, crushed rock and every day they had spread another pile of rock. And I was like, oh my God, that means every day there's going to be that much more I'm going to have to walk across. But I opened up to it. Rather than contracting to it, I opened up to it. And again, that was the gift of the first monk was to... Um, challenge me to face life as it was presenting itself and not try an intervention but could I actually meet the experience as it was presenting itself and strangely enough I, you know, I practice here in the States and somehow I got the idea that it would be a heaven realm to practice in Burma and like they had figured it out they've been doing it for thousands of years so it was really going to be cushed there and like the teachers really know what they were talking about as opposed to these guys <laughs> and the conditions were going to be perfect and they were so challenging. I mean, again, sort of the, the beeping watch is, is an annoyance, but um, <laughs> there, there are times when I would be settling in. It's like, oh, finally, the rainbow of peace has come. Ah, wow. And then bang, bang, bang on my door. And people would just burst in. It's like, we're here to paint your room. And they're all excited. And they just whip out the paint and they start painting it. <laughs> and you're like, what? And then you're sitting there trying to practice and they're tipping over and they're talking in Burmese and they're having a great time and you're sitting there just agitated and you can't believe it. And then they leave and you spend the whole rest of the day just shaken by all that. And again, the, um, the I mean, it's poor, poor Burma in a way, but they, they don't have such great building supplies. And so by the time they start building a building, they get halfway through and they have to start the repairs <laughs> on this end <laughs> before they finish this end. And so by the time they get to that, they repair that way through. They have to start the repairs. With <laughs> and so the buildings are just these waves of repair happening through. <laughs> and there's one guy, bless him, in the monastery. It's his job to straighten bent metal with a hammer. <laughs> and there's a lot of bent metal. They're re recycling the bent nails and everything. And just they're recycling it all. So his job all day long was to hit with a mallet, a metal mallet, metal things that were bent. And so that was like the, the cacophony of, of the sound and irritations. And so, again, you try to, how could I frame this? <laughs> how could I frame this one? It was just like, it would be so supportive to my liberation, not my liberation, to others' liberation if, uh, if we could bend the metal some other way at some other time, maybe meal times. And it's just like, have you noted unpleasant hearing? It was like, oh, I knew that was coming. I don't even know why I try anymore, but... 
after a while, you do give up trying to complain, and you just meet the experience as it presents itself. So. <laughs> and then uh, there are these little strategies that come in, because you can't help it. Like, when there's crushed rock, you are scanning for the flatter of the crushed <laughs> rock. You're like, if I put my toe on that, and, <laughs> and then someone had thrown away a, um, a cigarette carton, um, and I could step on it, and it gave me 2.3 seconds of peace. I was like, ah, thank <laughs> God for garbage. <laughs> Walking around that. <laughs> anyway, so the first, the first place we're meant to really um, come in this deep mindfulness with is the body. And the body revealing itself through sensations. And the sensations can be categorized in those four, four columns. And that's sometimes helpful to look at the the heat and just take some time noticing what's warm in my body and what's cool. And then between what's warm and what's cool, there's going to be some type of gradient. Somewhere in between there, it's going to go from hot to warm to neutral to cool to cold. And just feeling the play of temperature throughout your body. And then coming in and feeling the, you can intuit the bones and then you can actually begin to feel them feeling these bones and then surrounded by the muscle and surrounded by the skin. And at first it might feel a little bit like you're, I'm not sure if you're really feeling bone or not. Can I really feel bone? But then you can actually, over time, develop the sensitivity. You can feel that. That would be sort of the earth element. You can feel the pulse. You can feel your heart pulse where it's distinct, but then sometimes you can feel it pulsing all through your body if you're really relaxed and quiet. That's the play of that, what they're calling the air element. And then you can watch them play together. You can watch how these elements flow back and forth. You can watch the water element of how uh, sensations will flow through your body. So the flowing of warmth, the pulsing through the soft tissue, and you can begin to see all these elements play. With the second monk, I really learned not just to do it with diligence and not let my mind wander like a dog on a very short leash, but to luxuriate in it, to be so infinitely odd that this body knew how to live. It really, I didn't, I mean, you have billions of cells that are working without you having to figure out how they work. And so you can just rest in this body in a perpetual state of awe that it's pulsing and doing all this heat exchange. It knows how to keep the temperature right. It knows how to digest food. You do this, chew, swallow, and it takes care of the rest. That's pretty incredible. And so I learned to kind of float inside the body just in awe of its display of life, its own process, and feeling into that, and, and deeply enjoying it, making contentment and happiness the platform of why I would even be in the body to begin with. But then challenges do come up. I'll talk about those in a second. <clears throat> the second foundation of mindfulness, once we've really deeply come into the body, is this foundation called Vedana. And vedana is whether you find the experience you're having pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it's good to know that. It's good to know whether while you're having an experience, that experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Because often how we react to an experience is based on that factor, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it will set up the type of struggle 
if you're going to be struggling with experience, most likely you're going to be struggling with the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality of the experience. And so if you want to struggle less, that's a key place to put your attention, is coming to understand, be familiar with um, the quality of experience, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Strangely enough, we can, we can struggle with pleasant experiences. And we struggle with neutral experiences, and we struggle with unpleasant ones. But that's not so strange. We struggle with neutral experiences because they're not entertaining enough. <laughs> they're too neutral. So we don't invest in them. By not investing in them, we drift around a little bit. And then we're easy prey to take off on something else, looking for something else. So neutral, it takes some ability to settle into neutral experiences and appreciate them just because they are, just in awe of the fact that they are. But that, that can take some quality of mindfulness to appreciate neutral experiences because they don't have a draw. There's no drama um, to pull you in. Unpleasant experiences we struggle with because they're unpleasant. <clears throat> but you don't have to struggle with them. They can just be unpleasant. And that's actually a very deep uh, insight that took me a while to get, is that suffering is not the same as an unpleasant experience. An unpleasant experience just is, like the cold or the sharp rock. It's just unpleasant. And I can suffer over that or not. That's where I can make the difference. I can't make the cold pleasant, but I don't have to have a huge story on top of it and suffer because of that. And I can meet the experience and therein end the suffering that was connected to too cold or too sharp or too loud. We struggle over pleasant experiences <clears throat> because they're not coming fast enough from what we're anticipating. They don't last long enough once they've arrived, and they weren't quite pleasant enough when they were here <laughs> most of the time. You can actually be, uh, struggle with too much pleasure. There's a, there's a strange thing where too much pleasure can be unnerving. It can be so disorienting. It's so rare that it happens that too much pleasure can be disorienting. And there are people who, um, so we have ways of resisting and trying to slow down a big rush of pleasure. Um, but it doesn't come quick enough. And when it comes, it's not quite enough. And then it left too soon. And you can't just meet the experience as it presented itself. You have to struggle with it trying to make it come quicker, trying to make it be better than it was, and trying to make it last longer than it's intending to. It's like, um, I have time for that story. <laughs> there's, a, um, there's a cafe that I love to work in, and they play the right type of music. I like the people who come, good people watching. I like their coffee and tea. And I really love their chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> And so I get my laptop going, I get a little caffeine high, I get this cookie going, I can work for like three or four hours, good quality work, high point of my day, love it. <clears throat> so one day I'm in there and I'm getting all set up, typing away. I'm just not as happy as I usually am, so I try to you know, dust off my mind a little bit and encourage it, I'm like, okay, let's be happy about this. And mm, like, yeah, I'm just not as content today, I don't know why. And I'm looking around like, yeah, it's roughly the same people. Mm. Is it my mind that's off? Oh, my mind's, you know, the caffeine's flowing. <laughs> so this is kind of a high, but mm, yeah, it's not, not, it's not really meeting me. What's the, what's the difference? And taste the coffee, the coffee tastes the same. I'm looking around, like, why is the difference? And I look and they've changed the brand of cookie. <laughs> and I was like, really? 
to change the brand of cookie, and I'm going to suffer over this? And like, so why? Why am I suffering over this? Why is this not enough? Why is this not the high I thought I was going to get? So I chew it. I was like, okay, you know, it's sugar, yeah, it's chocolate, yeah, that's all pleasant. I'm like, what? Why am I suffering over this? Like, it's not the cookie I had last week, <laughs> and I really like that sugar, chocolate, fat, flour combination, and it's still a chocolate chip cookie, but it's just not the one. And so I'm like, okay, I'm not really going like, to lose my whole afternoon over this. Okay, I can deal. I've, I'm a meditator. <laughs> I've been a monk in Burma. I'm not going down on this one. <laughs> I, I can crack this one. I know I can. So I go back to work, and I'm just like, it's just the cookie. Everything else is the same. Everything else is the same. It's just the cookie, but I can't let it go. I can't let it go. I'm like eating it, and it's like, disappointed. Ah, okay, and I'm trying to get a little bit more of the chocolate and I'm like trying to open up the new things, change happens. And like, but then this story starts like building back my mind. It's like, you know, I'm a loyal customer. <laughs> I come here often and I think they should know. I mean, I really, for the sake of the cafe, they should know it's not a good cookie. They should just know this. And I, I'm going to tell them, not a big thing. It's really not about me. <laughs> but they should know. They should know. Get some customer feedback. That's what we'll call it. We'll call it customer feedback. And I was like, yeah, but then I have to get up and talk to them. They're busy, and I really just want to do the work. And it's all about this cookie temple, please. And it's like, but the, I can't let go of it. Because I'm really not paying that much attention to it. I think it's so small that I'm just like, away with you but it, it starts actually like building. And because I'm not tracking it, it really starts to convince me. And before I know it, I'm nodding. I say, yeah, I am a loyal customer. <laughs> and 275, that's a lot for a cookie. <laughs> if I'm gonna pay 275 day in and day out as a loyal customer, you know, I want the original cookie. And then I get to this point where I actually start reaching for the cookie, start wrapping it up, and then I have to get someone to watch my computer while I go. And, it's like, and I caught myself before I actually unfold this whole drama. It's like, you know, they really are that busy, and it's not that bad a cookie. I think I can adapt. <laughs> so I adapt around it and uh, come to terms with it. And I found that <laughs> I found that I like their oatmeal chocolate chip cookie better. <laughs> hmm. And then I had this realization: God, if I'm going to if I'm going to ruin a whole afternoon, if I'm going to sink my battleship on a chocolate chip cookie, you know. Heaven help me on the rest of life. <laughs> but it's mostly because I wasn't tracking it. And I had, without knowing it, become quite attached to those conditions because they'd been steady for a while. And having to adapt, you know, it took some time, but I could adapt to that and notice that it was just this. And I, the suffering really did enter in on the clinging. And then this I story that really began to justify that things should have been how I wanted them. You know, I'm the little ego fish in the cafe. And I was like, okay, this is a good cafe, your cafe, I'm just a customer, but you should know these things need to change, and I have a right to that. Anyways, that's how we struggle with Vedana. <clears throat> Another funny story, again, you can catch these things sometimes when they're small, and then you can extrapolate them into bigger situations and where you might be more lost. But again, on my first retreat, um, someone said, try not scratching an itch and just see what it's like to have an unpleasant experience. And he said, that, like, many things along Dharma talk. And I was like, that's the one I remembered. So next day I'm sitting there, and, like, an itch comes on my nose, and I go to scratch. And I'm like, oh, okay, let's watch this one. 
So I'm sitting there, <clears throat> I'm settling in. I, I know there's an itch because I wanted to scratch it, but I, I haven't really located it yet. I saw the hand reaching up automatically, and I go for my breath, going to find the itch, but it's, it's itching. I go to scratch it. Like, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to watch this one. Calm down, calm down. And I go to settle in, and then my system starts to get kind of agitated. I was like, yeah, but it's itching. It's kind of, kind of driving me crazy. I was like, Temple, you haven't even found it yet. Where is this thing? And I, I'm both... Part of me is getting more interested, and part of me is getting alarmed at the same time. It's almost a race. Who's going to find this itch first? So I go in. It's like, God, okay, there's an itch, but it's really agitating me. My whole body's starting to itch, and I, and I got to solve this thing now. <clears throat> and then I clicked in. I was like, no, you do not have to solve this now. It's just an itch. And I got, re- I got some resolution on this one. Like, <sighs> and I go in, and, I, and I'm getting my mind almost to the itch, and these thoughts start exploding like, you got to itch it. you got to itch it now. you got to itch it now. It's driving you crazy. You can itch it, itch it, itch it. And, and I had to get more and more focused, like, shut up. And then, <laughs> I just want to find you. I can't even, like, you're so small. I can't even see you in this blaring thing. And as I was going in, I actually had the thought, as my mind was getting more and more desperate around this, desperate around this itch, this thought like a shooting star went right through me, like, kill me now. <laughs> like, kill me now. I was like, oh, really? Oh, really? Think this is the mind I gotta live with. You're the one making decisions about my future. <laughs> Kill me now, or itch, or feel it. I have three options: itch it, feel it, or kill me now. And I go in. Finally, I don't kill me now, thank God. And I don't itch it. And I go in, and it's the hardest thing to find. It's this tiny. I mean, it's probably like one atom was touching my toes, and it was this little ding, 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 ding. I was like. I almost killed myself over that, but I didn't want it. It was somehow it was just not what I wanted in my experience, and so I would have raked my fingernail across my skin, causing much more harm to my body than the itch. But it, it was just annoying. I just didn't want that thing. So I was able to expand that later on to mosquitoes and not kill mosquitoes, and open myself up to the ecosystem that mosquitoes happen. And before I used to find them a nuisance, I would kill them. Then I tried not killing them just because of the precept. Then I began opening and letting a mosquito come, land, hearing the buzz, freaking out, <laughs> calming down, letting it draw blood and fly away, and then seeing the awe of that. Like, that thing is amazing. It can draw my blood and fly away. It knows how to fly. That's incredible. And suddenly there's an awe where before it would just have been an annoyance and then death. <laughs> but it turned into a very, I mean, I had to be balanced to do it. But I could let a mosquito land and fly away. And then it itched so much that I would just, you know, shoo the other ones away that I wouldn't have to kill them. So things open up small at first and then larger. And these are small examples. You know, these are not our biggest challenges, uh, mosquitoes and cookies. But they're, they're where the, the insight into the pattern happened. Um, and from that, I could extrapolate into harder circumstances, much harder circumstances, but you can see it's just an unpleasant experience, and that's bad enough. But I can add a whole lot of suffering to it. And if I could come down just to meet the bad experience, the unpleasant experience, and then try to problem solve without all the agitation of the suffering, maybe there's something I can do about it, but not from this agitated suffering place. So that's the, that's the, uh, the second <clears throat> foundation of mindfulness is this Vedana, the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experience. The third one, and we opened up, up last night with Pascal's talk in the morning, this morning's um, <clears throat> meditation instruction, 
is becoming aware of uh, the elements of the mind, elements of the mind-heart in uh, Asia, in this tradition, where it comes from. The, actually, they, they point more to their heart when they say mind. And here, we often think of mind as um, more head-related. But understanding the knowing and all the things that color knowing, that's emotions, uh, anger, fear, um, irritation, joy, <clears throat> qualities of attention, whether you have a focused attention, a stable attention, whether your mind feels agitated, whether you feel sort of foggy, um, all these aspects of the mind, just getting to know them real time, not after, oh, I was really angry yesterday, but while you're angry now, know that you're angry. And then, know, and then watch it pass. And so you can point your mindfulness to this field of the play of emotion. So as a question, um, how many of you um, might have felt irritation today? You can raise your hand. Okay. And of those hands, how many of you are still feeling irritation? Okay. So you can't do this. <laughs> but the rest of you can see that irritation happened and then it passed. For the rest of you, you get to watch it pass because it can't last. You'll get to see that. You both know when anger is present and you know when it's past. You know when joy is present and you know when it's past. And you don't know it like you're knowing something from a distance. You know it from within. You saturate yourself in the experience of what it's like to be angry or sad. We increase our capacity to do that. So there comes a point where if you get too angry, you can't be in it and you'll start reacting. But we all will have increasing capacity to extend into new emotions, new body sensations, new plays between the two. As the emotion surges, so do certain body sensations and so do certain thoughts. And you're going to have a greater capacity to handle a greater range of your own experience. And you can be in it more while it's happening before you need to control it, contract it, space out on it, do something other than actually float patiently within the experience. <clears throat> so that's the third foundation, is being in the direct experience of the mind as it changes, as the emotions come and go, as mental states come and go, as the hindrances come and go, as states of clarity come and go, as states of joy and calm come and go. You watch that play without clinging to it without clinging to any one expression or resisting any one expression. You increase your capacity to do that. Burma was a great place to extend my range <laughs> because it wasn't such a controlled environment. It was much colder and hotter. It was much louder at times. Um, there were greater irritations. Uh, I lost a sense of um, injustice to a meditator. The sort of sense of entitlement got broken. Um, and I could be within those experiences. And <clears throat> they were not, the beautiful thing about Burma is that they, they're so um, intense about their practice is that they, they expect you and they have faith in you to meet your experience. Um, even to flounder a bit while you're trying to meet your experience. And I think we do a pretty good job of letting people do that while also giving them a type of holding that makes that productive as well, because there's something about being just tossed about that happened there as well. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is actually a quite a long, big, complicated one, but we've been already been exploring it, so I'll, I'll just touch on it briefly. Um, and the fourth foundation of mindfulness is called the Dhammas. 
And the dhammas are the processes. Once you get to know the content of experience, you get to know the elements of the body, you get to know sound, the direct experience, you get to know the vedana, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. <clears throat> and you get to know the qualities of heart and mind that are happening in the moment. So you get very good at sort of knowing what ha what's happening moment by moment and watching them change. Then you can actually begin to see patterns play out. You get to see something that, that uh, clinging creates a type of self, and that self struggles, and that self then changes. Oh, and then there's another sense of freedom. You can watch these things play out a bit over time. You can see some of the mechanisms and forces that uh, end up getting us in trouble, and then the ones that ended up uh, setting us free. And you begin studying those processes. And so they're, they're laid out. Um, the hindrances, for example, what Pascal talked about, that's, that's a class of these dhammas, how they hinder awareness, how they slow down or challenge you from being present. So that's a, a class of these dhammas. They're a class of um, what it's like to be in the mind and see them at play. There are, there are classes of experience that um, when they're very developed, we have beautiful insight. And so these are all happening. You don't necessarily need to know these lists, but you're watching the, the, the process by which you get stuck and the process by which you get free. And that's really the study of the fourth noble truth. Uh, the fourth foundation is becoming good at and insightful on how your own mind will get you in trouble or how your own mind can solve the dilemma of being in trouble and experience the sense of freedom. And then the last of, the, um, of these dhammas is the Four Noble Truths, which covers everything A to Z. So it's just uh, the study of suffering and the freedom from suffering and how we get freedom from suffering. So these are the places that we're asked to point our mindfulness. The first place is a deep coming to know the body and all of its play of experience. <clears throat> the next is knowing the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral quality of experience. The third is knowing the elements of the mind and heart as they're coming and going. The fourth is knowing these, uh, these processes of suffering and the processes of being set free. And these all can be explored within the body. These all can be explored as the body opens up to you, and as you open up within it as the consciousness that's already imbued in there, you come and settle in to live within the body. You can live within your breath. You can fall in love with the breath so much that at times you forget any other person you've been in love with. You can actually fall in love with your body that way. And then you can open up and love other people as well as your breath. Um, but you can <laughs> Yeah. Okay. <laughs> And maybe the last thing to say is that um, in the opening process, uh, we come with challenges and the sense of freedom might feel distant and it's the occasional rainbow. And then more and more, the sense of freedom is where is that calm, contented, open uh, aquarium that things are happening, passing through without strife, without struggle. That's more and more the basis where we live from and yet it's not until we're fully free, there are times that we feel like there's something wrong in the tank. There's something agitating in the tank. And so we can have a, a general progression where we're opening our range. We're opening our range in every retreat or every 
time we extend into something that was challenging before we find a little more capacity. But there are places and there are openings that are very difficult. <clears throat> places that our system, given experiences in life and how we've been, um, how we are built individually and things that we've experienced, opening them takes some care. So the first thing is always just to see if you can try the direct content, the direct awareness of that physical manifestation, a pain in your back, tightening in your throat, closing around your heart, a sense of hollowness in the body. See if you can open up an intimacy with that without changing it, which is difficult because chances are it won't be pleasant. You'll want to change it. So you soften the desire to change it and you just open up to the intimacy of what this experience is. If it's overwhelming, if you find that you come in contact with it, and then very quickly, over some, or over some time, you lose the capacity to meet it with that sort of fresh, timeless, patient intimacy, then it's good to take a break. So you take a conscious break. If you don't take a conscious break, you'll take an unconscious break. You'll get tired, you'll get reactive, something will happen, and your mind will lose contact because it just can't stay there anymore. Before that happens, it's good to take a conscious break and be mindful of something else. You don't have to be mindful of the worst thing in your body, <laughs> the most painful thing in your body. It's good to extend and challenge your range to include that as an awareness. But if you start to feel like you're drowning there or overwhelmed there, um, it's defeating you time and time again, then it's a long-term project. And many long-term meditators know where their long-term projects are. And you open those areas carefully with uh, patience. You come in gentle contact with them. When you start to get overwhelmed, you be mindful of something else in the present moment. Mindful of another place in your body, which is a good place to go if you can find a place in your body that's a resource. Some other place in your body that if you're, if say it's, uh, the pain is in your hip, you come up to your shoulders or down to your hands, and you start to feel a sense of return of that sort of calm contentedness and the pain is a little bit more in the background. But you might need to open your eyes. You might need to come, uh, let the body rest a little bit, contact with the body rest a little bit, and open up to just taking in the visual, the visual of the room, the visual of the here and now, taking in the beauty of the land. And that can be calming to the mind. And then you're refreshed enough to go back in and try another re relationship to this painful place. That process has a technical term, it's called pendulation. You swing the pendulum back and forth to a challenge and to then a reassuring experience consciously so that the mind can develop, it can rest, it can open, it can brighten, and then bring it in the right amount of contact with the challenge. And when you feel that your, your gas gauge is getting close to empty, before it reaches empty, and then you have to push your car, <laughs> before it reaches empty, you swing it out and you refill the tank on things that are um, uplifting consciously. And it's a, a skillful pacing of yourself with the difficult openings. And that's some of what um, uh, we do as teachers in the individual interviews is we attune people to see if the challenges that they're facing is one that they really can meet. On the one hand, you can meet challenges far beyond your, your own assessment. And that's what I learned in Burma. But I also learned that there, are some, that there are skillful ways beyond just diving in um, to meet those challenges. And some of that is compassion and patience. Um, 
can be actually more rewarding in the long run than just um, some massive determination to um, break through the pain in the body. Brings us to the end of the hour. Um, given that we have several days uh, left, <clears throat> I would love for you all to explore um, that type of intimacy where, as you come into the body, um, the sense of work ethic is balanced with a sense of relaxation and calm and well-being. And that might mean um, if you've been working very hard and finding it exhausting, that you just learn to relax and back off a little bit. So you can enjoy the process and then stretch. You know, we don't want to be lightweights, but you don't have to make every session some hardened battle. You can make uh, contentment and joy in cultivating them as important as um, this intimacy, this direct contact, because the true intimacy um, will feel both relaxed, uh, content, happy with things as they are, as well as deeply intimate with whatever comes, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So that's where I would steer you. Now let's take a moment and let the words settle. And if you haven't been in your body, get reunited. Starting with that, um, with a sense of contentment with things just as they are. Don't force that to be true, but allow as much of that to be true as possible. That feels natural. Being content with things just as they are. then allow that to be the basis of intimacy. Knowing this experience as it's changing, as you're in it. Not knowing it from afar, but knowing it from within the experience, whatever it may be. letting contentment and intimacy guide you into this deep connection with whatever is happening now. Aligning yourself with the water in the tank that experience passes through.
Enjoy your swim. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.